0: Well, we are back in our series. Uh, we're calling it "Growth in Christ Likeness. It's just a series on sanctification. If you're new, um, and we've just been looking at this this idea that that really God's goal for us in our lives today is yes, to bring Him glory. We know that, but in particular, to bring Him glory through becoming like Jesus. So we're saved. We come to know Christ. We come to know the Messiah, and then God is is committed to us now in a covenant relationship to making us more like Him. And He is committed to that. Far more committed to that than we are most of the, all the time. And um, and so God, this is God's agenda for us, and we want that to become our agenda as well in our lives and to, to realize that progressively. So this is our third week in the series. In the first week, we talked about some general principles uh, concerning growth. So what... Big picture, what did the Bible say? What does the Bible say about, about growth and truths, promises, things we need to know that really will set the set the stage for us? So we worked through that last or several weeks ago. And then week two we talked about the centrality of faith. So why is faith so important to this process? We learned that we we, we grow as we come to understand and believe the truth. That's really the core of our responsibility. Paul talks about walking by faith, living by faith in Christ. And he he just means that we live out our entire Christian life progressively entrusting ourselves to Christ and to his truth. And that's the the essence. We summed it up last last, last week as entrustment, living a life of entrustment to Christ. And as we entrust ourselves to him, we also yield our wills to him in obedience. Right? If we believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus, then we're going we're gonna to submit to him, we're going we're gonna to submit to his commands. Action follows belief. So if I believe this stage can hold me up, but I won't walk on it, I don't really believe that the stage can hold me up, right? So, if we, be- so we believe in Jesus, but we don't have any regard for his commands or his directives for our lives. We really don't trust him. Um, and that's a, that's sobering for us to think about, but it boils down our, our sanctification process to really a fight to believe God, a fight for faith. And that was week two, the centrality of faith. Today, what we're going to look at are some additional gifts God gives us for growth. Some additional gifts that God gives us for growth. So, we're going to be answering questions like these. What are some of the channels that God's truth comes to us so that we believe it and obey it? So if last week we learned that we believe the truth and that's, that's what sanctifies, sanctifies us, what are some of the channels that that truth comes to us so that we can believe it and then obey it? Well, we could say it like this. What are some of the specific tools that God uses to chisel away at our unbelief and sin and to form us into the image of Christ? How does he do that? What are some of the tools that he uses? Now, if you were to think about that question and answer it yourself, what would you say? Just think to yourself for a moment. Ponder that question. What what are some of God's tools that he uses besides what we talked about last week? The truth, the spirit, faith in Christ, faith in faith in the truth. More often than not, I think in my Christian life I've tended to, to think individualistically about this. Right? So what do we typically think of? I need to read my Bible more, right? That's that's one of the ways. And I'm not diminished I'm not Diminishing that or devaluing that We'll talk about that But we say I need to read my Bible more I need to, to pray more To be more consistent in those areas Individualistically Or individually And that's important uh, Incredibly important for our growth And we could spend an entire lesson Just talking about those two things Prayer and Bible reading Memorization, meditation, those things But today I want us to focus on this main idea that God intends the local church to be the incubator for our growth. God intends the church, and specifically the local church, Timberlake Baptist for all of you, to be the incubator for our growth. In other words, growth in likeness is going to happen as we commit to and immerse ourselves in the ministry at Timberlake. So growth will happen. It's how God has designed it, as we commit to and immerse ourselves at TBC. So just as we introduce this idea today, I want you to think about a couple of things. So Paul was the great evangelist, right? He went to the Gentiles, he planted churches. We saw that, and we've seen that in the book of Acts. But if you were here last week and heard Tim preach from Matthew 28 and, and other places, we learned that there's another side of Paul's Ministry, which is to present the church mature in Christ, right? That's his burden. And so Paul would go back and revisit these churches after he'd planted them to make sure they were established in doctrine and they had elders who could lead them, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I want you to to observe by this is that, that Paul expected this, what we'll call maturational element, that this maturational element of his, of his commission to be carried out in and by the local church. He expected the local church to carry on what he had started. So, many of the commands that Paul says, you know, I labor for you, I labor for your growth, I I teach you, I, I admonish you. He transitions to the church. Teach one another, admonish one another. So all of these things transition over to the church. And the church, then, in Paul's mind, is the incubator, really, for the growth and the maturity of the Christians that are assembled in it. It's why he planted them. It's why he told the churches to continue to meet. And it's why he installed faithful elders so that the church would, would mature. And this, just kind of as a side note, is why we really press membership at Timberlake, and in particular in Boundless. It's because we know uh, and believe deeply that as you commit here by faith, that the Lord will work in your life. So really, if you wanted to boil down our ministry objectives and balance, we've got two main objectives as you come to us. We want to make sure that you know Christ. That's premier. I'm not interested in you becoming a member and not knowing Christ. Okay, So we want to make sure that you know Christ and the gospel. And then, number two, we want you to get plugged into the incubator. right? We want you to get plugged into his body here at TBC through membership. And I'm not going to say the rest will take care of itself. Uh, but it kind of will. Uh, the Lord will, will be faithful. It definitely involves our effort for sure, but god is, this is god 's design. So our, our theme today, if you want to write down our kind of a theme line, we could say it like this: God provides a number of incredible gifts for us that come from His church. God provides a number of incredible gifts for us that come from His church. And we'll look at six of them. And we'll go fast. Okay? I'll try to go fast. Six of them. They're not going to be new to you. uh, But it'll be helpful, I think, to put it in this context. Six gifts that come from his church. Gifts for growth is what we'll call it. So the title of the message, Gifts for Growth in the Local Church. Should be pretty easy to remember. Alright, number one. First gift. Preaching. Preaching is the first gift of God to the church. And we could tie in with that, elders and leadership, church leaders, those kinds of things. But preaching, I'm going to focus on preaching. So the primary way that God desires to grow us is by the public preaching of His Word. Think about that for a second. Personal Bible reading is an incredible privilege. I love it, right? I read my Bible often, study it deeply, especially to teach. But for nearly 2,000 years of church history, very few Christians had their own copy of the Scriptures. Think about that. God has worked in and sustained His church for millennia through the corporate reading and preaching of Scripture. And in fact, it, it stretches Pat, beyond, you know, from a from a historical perspective, behind the church, to Israel and his people in the Old and New Covenants. He sustains them through the corporate reading and preaching of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to try to go deep into text today, because we don't have time. But if you want to write down Nehemiah 8 and 9. Nehemiah 8 and 9 for your reading later. It's one of my favorite stories. And essentially, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Ezra... The people have come back from exile, and Ezra the scribe is tasked with teaching the people God's ways, because they'd forgotten them. So they build him a little pulpit, a little platform. He stands on it, he gets the, the Torah, rolls it out, he's got people on his right and his left that are helping him interpret and make sense of it, and he just starts reading it. And it says, when he started reading it, all the people stood up, and he read it from sunup to sundown, day after day after day, and as he read it, he just explained it to them. That's all he did. Read, explain. Read, explain. And they were broken. They were brought to repentance. They mourned. They fasted. They implemented the things that they weren't doing. It was just, um, it's amazing to see all Ezra was doing was standing up there, reading the the Torah, explaining it to them, giving them the sense, and God worked mightily in the nation of Israel. Nehemiah 8 and 9. And uh, Paul's commands to Timothy, we're, we're used to those, but I'll put them up on the screen for you. Paul tells Timothy until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation to teaching so Did do you see those elements? reading of scripture and in, in Timothy's day that was the Old Testament so he was to give attention to the public reading much like Ezra and an application now to the new covenant people of God through exhortation and teaching again just so you don't think it's just coming from me preach the word again he says to, to Timothy at the end of his life This is one of the climactic exhortations he gives to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, it's just so central. And there's so many texts, we would be here all day if we looked at them. So, I just want you to see that God has designed this preaching to come to us through faithful but flawed men. And they're called elders and pastors. You see this in a number of places. Ephesians 4.12 is a good one to write down. And God has raised up these men to watch over our souls. And one of the main ways they do this is by faithfully teaching God's Word to us. Week in, week out, morning and evening. And this kind of preaching grows us in some pretty incredible ways. So I've listed a few of them for us here. Faithful preaching helps us understand God's Word more clearly. More clearly. Now, it's not that God's Word is, is unclear. It's just the receptors, i.e. you and I, are a little dull sometimes. So God has actually given teachers to the church who are gifted in this area. In fact, they have to be, or they can't be, an elder. They're gifted in this area to help, help the people of God understand God's Word more clearly. This is God's design. This, this kind of preaching anticipates our questions... It illustrates difficult concepts. It gives us practical examples to walk in. And this is all by God's good design. This is how he intended it to be. Faithful preaching also keeps us from from error that we might otherwise be deceived by. Again, we've said this a a lot, but when we're deceived, we don't know it. We don't know it. So God has ordained this faithful men who have to meet certain qualifications before you install them as, as pastor or teacher, to be set apart, to teach, to keep us from error. A theological error, yeah, about, about Christ and His church, but, but equally important is a lifestyle error. Uh, living a life that denies what we believe and teach. So this faithful preaching does that. It also challenges our, our pet sins and our heart idols that we might otherwise ignore. We've grown comfortable with them, and so we don't attack them like we should. So if it were just left up to us in our personal Bible reading, we would gravitate toward the places we like. 1 Corinthians 13, even though that's one of the most convicting chapters in the entire Bible. Um, places that are familiar to us, that we like, that are encouraging to us, and we begin to ignore other areas of our lives. Well, faithful preaching won't let us do that, especially expository preaching. As we work chapter by chapter, through text after text after text, to hear God's mind on the issue. So it keeps us faithful, and it, it challenges our pet sins. Faithful preaching helps us to know and reminds us to believe God's love for us. Oh, yep, that's it. Often when it's hard to believe, right? So I just said it assures us of God's love for us. How many times have you come to an assembly and and just heard teaching that just God's like that? Like God loves me like that? Uh, in spite of all my sin, you, you, you lack assurance, but then you hear the word preached and it, it comes to you. And it, faithful preaching assures of God's love when it's often hard to believe. It models what repentance looks like. Because the preacher himself is in progress. And this is one of my favorite favorite things about preaching. As God does his work in the pastor's heart, the pastor can help the saints navigate the truth's impact in their own hearts. I love that. We don't get to escape, as teachers, the crucible of God's Word in the study. God hammers us through the Word. We understand. We have to look deeply into our hearts to see, okay, this is how the truth confronts me. Here's how the truth encourages me. Here's how the truth assures me. Here's how the truth uproots this idol and pride in my life. So we get, we get dragged through that in a good way by the Spirit. And then all of that is fruit, then, in the preaching of the Word. and faithful And preachers have insights into the human heart. Because of their own heart. So it models what repentance looks like. And faithful preaching helps us to, to read and apply our Bibles better. So think about this. It actually is working to help you read your Bible better in, the, in private. So as, you're, as we're going through text after text after text after text by men who are set apart to interpret and apply the Scriptures, it actually informs your own reading. It helps you interpret and apply the scriptures better and more accurately to your own life and avoid misinterpretation. So I, I can't tell you how this is, this rang true so much for me when I, when I first was kind of a new convert in college and got plugged into a church and really began to see, okay, this is how you do this. Um, it just fueled my own, my own study of scripture. So helpful. So you need to recognize that your maturity in large part depends on the maturity of the preaching that you're exposed to on a regular basis. Your maturity depends in large part, not all, not exclusively, but in large part, on the maturity of the preaching that you're exposed to on a regular basis. That's why it's so important to be involved in a healthy church, kind of right off the bat. Preaching is a gift of God to you to help you grow, and is perhaps one of the most powerful gifts that God has given to us. There's so many promises in Scripture about the power of God's Word. Isaiah 55 says that it never returns void or empty from what God intends it to do. So the Word always accomplishes its mission. So man, faithful preaching unleashes the power of God in the life of the church. Number two, singing. Singing. Another way that the Lord desires to see His Word work its way into our hearts and lives is by singing together. Look at this text in Colossians three sixteen. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and he says teaching, so we just kind of covered that element the faithful preaching, but he also says singing, right here. It's a participle. So it's a way that the word dwells in us through singing. And God intends to grow us through through this process of singing together. So let's think about that for a minute. When we sing together, the thunderous sound of the assembly singing to God directs us heavenward. It points us up, right? Think about entering into the assembly with the throng of, of, of God's people singing His praises. It sets our minds on the things above, and it reminds us that we're part of God's glorious purpose here on earth to hear the people of God sing. And these songs get stuck in your head intentionally even if the melodies are wonky don't they? They're a form of memorization and meditation on the truth. It's intentional. God knows that singing helps us meditate and memorize the truth. And for a negative example of that look at uh, Deuteronomy 31. God tells Moses to write a song for the people of Israel so that what God did will live unforgotten in their mouths, is what he says. But it's a song about their judgment. <laughs> because it's essentially saying, Yes, Lord, you did all these things for us, and we're gonna go into the land and we're gonna ignore you, and you're gonna judge us for it, and so this is why we're gonna know that you're gonna judge us for it, because you know, we're singing about you that you delivered us and we should have known this was coming. It's kind of the... <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that, because it probably just really butchered that psalm. Beautiful song of Moses there. But uh, anyway, Deuteronomy 31, that's the essence of it. That's a negative example. But he has God has Moses write it down so that it will live unforgotten in their mouths. In other words, it'll it'll help them memorize it. Um, in Ephesians 5.19, Paul says, we are to address one another when we sing. So, it's a little far cry from sort of the Passion Conferences where everybody's, you know, only addressing the Lord. Uh, So, Ephesians 5.19 says we're to address one another. That's because singing is one of the ways that we affirm truth to each other. It's corporate in nature. So we should be able to hear each other. Sing. When we sing together, we're, we're saying, yes, I believe this too. This is the truth. So we're affirming it to one another. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's a sweet moment when you catch your friend's eye or somebody you're discipling or somebody that's discipling you and they kind of find you as you're singing a lyric to a song and they're like, I'm seeing this and thinking of you. Isn't that powerful? Because you're affirming the truth to one another and you're being built up kind of in that moment. So it, it affirmed, we affirm the truth to each other when we sing. It's a form of instructing each other. And I'm even impacted by people who have no idea they're impacting me when they sing. Has this ever happened to you? My faith is strengthened when I see other saints praising their Lord, especially when they're suffering, or they're going through something difficult, or a trial. Have you ever seen somebody that's just riddled with cancer, and they're just praising God from the bottom of their heart, in the corporate assembly? They can't get enough of Christ, what does that do to your faith? That strengthens it. Even if, even if you're suffering and you're having a hard time trusting the Lord, you see there's something available that maybe you haven't tapped into yet, but it's there. Through the singing of God's Word. And just lastly, music evokes emotion all by itself, doesn't it? I think we could just ask uh, King Saul as he uh, had David come in and play for him. You know? That was a Tough time for David. almost got tagged to the wall with a spear. Um, but at the same time, music helped soothe the evil spirit that was in Saul. So, uh, we can see that music evokes emotion all by itself. But when it's paired with the truth, it can affect us in the most profound ways and helpful ways. Emotion is a good gift from God. So when it's it's fueled by the truth, it can affect us in, in really profound ways. So singing is important Incredibly important. In fact, it's got a place right alongside the teaching in Colossians 3. And it's a form, it's a way that the word of Christ dwells in us. So, don't think of singing as a nice prelude to the preaching hour. Or, what's worse, a waste of time. Uh, or wishing that we could sing your favorite songs and you're just kind of discontent with what we're singing. That's not the issue. It's not about you. It's about engaging with God and engaging with your brothers and sisters as you meditate on the truth. It's intended by God to have a positive growth effect in your heart, in your life. Just by singing. So, number three, I'm going to keep moving here. The ordinances. The ordinances. And if you don't know what that word means, it just means the another word for it is sacraments, or the things that Christ has commanded uh, to be observed and practiced in the church as pictures of his death and the implications of his death for us. So, you could think of it as if preaching, the first thing that we talked about, is is truth through speech, and singing is truth through song, we might call this point truth through symbols, or truth through pictures, even though there's words involved in, in the Lord's Supper and Baptism. God has instituted two of these ordinances that He desires us to to practice and intends us to grow as we do. And the first one's baptism. Baptism. Can put that up there? Yep. So what is baptism? Baptism is a, a public declaration of the Lordship of Christ. It's saying, He is my Lord. I have, I'm united to Him by faith, and I'm publicly declaring that for everyone to see. It's a way of identifying publicly with Christ. It pictures what happened to us at conversion. So we were buried with Christ in his death. We were forgiven. We were raised up with him spiritually to live life now with new power. That's what Romans 6 says. And this, of course, has a sanctifying effect on the one baptized. It does. I mean, that's who it's intended for. Is a public declaration, an affirmation of, of our faith in Christ and our conversion. But it also impacts everybody who watches it. So I want you to consider this with me for a minute. Watching a baptism does some things. It reaffirms my identity in Christ. That's what it does. It reaffirms our identity in Christ. It compels us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.11 That's a a symbol of what it is. And it's saying, yeah, yeah, that's a reality for me, too. It reminds me. It reaffirms my identity in Christ. In particular, it reaffirms that I'm dead to sin. may not feel that way. But reality is, uh, yep, I am dead to sin. That's, that's true. Sin no longer is my master, and I'm no longer completely enslaved to it. I might be dominated by a particular sin pattern in my life at, this, at the moment, but the reality, objectively, my status has changed. Christ is my new master. And not only am I dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. I'm alive to God. Baptism reminds me that I have resurrection power at my disposal to live a new life. So hopeful. Paul says it like this. We are raised to walk in newness of life in Romans 6, 4. Talking about baptism, like in the symbol of baptism, what baptism depicts about us. So when sin and discouragement seem to dominate, I can repent with fresh hope... Because of these truths declared to me by baptism, they're glorious realities, and my thinking needs to get in line with, with what these realities are about myself. and once I get my identity straight, I'll be more inclined to, like Paul says, present myself to God for righteousness in Romans 6:12 through 14. Oh man, sorry guys, I'll send this to you. How about that? So there's a a lot of textual support there for baptism. It reaffirms my identity in Christ. Dead to sin and alive to God. And it leads to presenting myself for service to God instead of sin. So that leads to the Lord's Supper. The second ordinance or communion is another gift of God's grace to us in the ordinances. And it's also intended to nourish us spiritually. Not just to eat the plastic-like things and think, man, this tastes like plastic. That's kind of what I'm tempted to think sometimes. I wish they had a little more juice. But, we're not going to complain about our method of taking communion, are we, Clay? No. I'm just, I'm just messing around. Communion is significant for what it symbolizes, not what it tastes like. Okay? It, it symbolizes our union with Christ, that we have been united to Him by faith. And we stay united to Him by faith. That's what communion is all about. The Lord's Supper. We participate in Him. And it's a reminder, progressively, a reminder of that. And so it it assures us. It does some things with us as, as we take the Lord's Supper. Like I just said, it reminds us of our union with Christ. We are in Him. Participating with Christ. We get the benefits of His death. We get the benefits of His resurrection. They belong to us. Not because of anything we've done, but simply by connecting Him by faith. Trusting Him. It assures us in our present battle with sin. So this is not the final word. Okay? Christ loves us. We are united by faith in Him. Sometimes it's almost like we can't take communion unless we're sinless. You know? That's not the intent. In that examine-yourself passage in 1 Corinthians, people were getting drunk And they were neglecting the poor people in their church. And they were hoarding all the food for themselves. And so, Paul is saying, you don't even understand what you're doing. You've got to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith, is what he says. So, to be sinless is not something that... You don't have to be sinless to take the the supper. It's you need to be humble, repentant, trusting Christ, working at your sin. Uh, You need to be in Christ, in other words. A true believer. So, it assures us of our, in our present battle with sin that this is not the final word. And it reaffirms our essential union with one another. So it has something to do with the corporate body. We're all drinking, like Paul says, from the same cup or eating from the same loaf or some from the same bread. So symbolically, we belong to one another through Jesus. And it reaffirms this union that we have with each other. And that's sanctifying, isn't it? Because it's it's... Are you at odds with somebody in the body? Well, you ought not be. You need to pursue that. You need to deal with that. We can't let sin lay dormant um, with one another. And lastly, it helps us anticipate the kingdom. It helps us anticipate the kingdom. So, when we're drinking this, the Spirit is among us. So, Christ's presence is with us through the Spirit. But there's a greater thing coming where Christ Himself is going to be with us eating this supper. And in fact, he's, he's taken an abstinence from the Lord's Supper until his return and until he eats it with us again in the kingdom. And so we're proclaiming this until, until he returns. It's forward-looking. It helps us anticipate the kingdom. And that also helps us grow, doesn't it? Because when you think about the return of Christ, that like, puts everything into perspective in your daily life. So communion is, is sanctifying for us. It's, a key that we're, it's key that we're availing ourselves of these vital gifts for growth. They're designed to encourage our faith and to grow us, keeping us dependent on Christ. And one thing I just want to point out is we observe these things on Sunday nights. So many of you don't come on Sunday nights. So a lot of you do, some of you do, but you're, you're missing out on actually what's commanded by the Lord um, on, those, on those Sunday nights. And this is meant to be a nourishment, spiritual nourishment for you as built-in reminders of the gospel and built-in reminders of, of who Christ is to His people in communion. So carve out time and prioritize this on Sunday nights, especially our baptisms and when, when we observe these, these communions. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this lesson. We'll, we'll, make, we'll go as far as we can. Number four, discipleship. This is no surprise to you. Discipleship is the fourth gift of God through His church. Discipleship is simply helping other people follow Jesus. That's all it is. It's not a big program, can be. It's not a 12-step process. You know, it's, it's helping other people progressively learn to follow Jesus better. It's spiritual influence through relationships, and Christ has called every single one of us to this work. To know one another, to help each other, to spur each other along in discipleship. But it's actually an incredible gift for our growth, even though He commands it. So, it's commanded, and it's a gift for our our growth. So, it happens in two ways, okay? Being discipled grows us, and that's pretty obvious. Being discipled grows us. We'll just go through these kind of quickly because this is pretty obvious. People model the truth as it's lived out in front of us in our discipleship relationships. So we see it in flesh, so to speak. Uh, disciples can answer specific questions that we have about the faith, about our lives, about growth. You know, it's like you don't have to wait around for the sermon series. You can go right to your discipler and say, hey, I'm struggling in this area. Or, hey, how do I think about the return of Christ? Or, hey, you know, this person said this, and how do I, how do I think through that? We answer specific questions in discipling. Your disciples, as they get to know you, will come to know your specific propensities. Right? Towards sin and things that might be tempting to you. And they might come alongside you, and it might be annoying, but they'll help you not fall into those same propensities. They will encourage your strength. So that's the flip side of this. They get to know you. They see where you're gifted and your strength. and They're going to help you create opportunities to maximize your giftedness and your strengths that God's given you. Now, affirm your growth. And that's huge. That's huge in the discipleship relationship. As we're making, I mean, because it seems like we're always dominated by sin, but as we make these little steps, the disciples are always affirming our growth in Christ. It keeps us fueled up, you know, to keep, keep going. So, being discipled obviously grows us. And doing the work of discipling grows us. Doing the work of discipling actually grows us. Think through these things with me for a moment. It forces us back to the Word to answer the questions of the people that we're entrusted to, or the people that are entrusted to us, right? So they have questions, we may not have the answer, so it forces us back to the Scriptures to grow ourselves. Discipline casts us more dependently on Christ because we don't have all the answers and we don't have any of those spiritual resources ultimately that can affect change in any single person. So that's a humbling thing for me. When I think about, you know, I'm sitting across the table from somebody and we're working through truth and I'll have this thought sometimes, I have no ability to change them. No. That's humbling. Okay, so cast us more dependently on Christ. Love that. It exposes our hypocrisy. Whoa! I mean, as you're trying to help somebody grow, the light gets shined right back in your face, and you've got to deal with stuff. Because you can't be telling Joe to deal with stuff, and you're not going to deal with it. So do you see how God designs this? He designs it to, to really fuel our own growth, examine our own lives for areas of hypocrisy, and we're driven to new levels of, of repentance and faith through this process than we ever thought before, you know? Because we didn't realize how bad we were uh, before we started discipling somebody else and how inadequate we were. So it's going to drive us to new levels of repentance and faith and humility. And I think, I love this. This is something I've seen in my life over and over again. It, It really cultivates the fear of Christ in my life, meaning it uproots the fear of man. Right? So if I'm fearing man, Paul says, I can't be a servant of Christ. It's like oil and water; they don't mix. I can't have two masters. So it uproots the fear of man. Well, how does it do that? Well, because as I'm involved in your life and I see something, I'm not nitpicking, but as I see a pattern that's going to be destructive for you, I have to say something about it. And I still get nervous. I don't like doing that because at the root there's a fear of man. What do they think of me? Well, they leave our church? No, 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 no. My mind goes through all these things. They're scary. But Christ has said, you've got to speak. For my good, my glory, trust me, when you do it. And that just, boom, it's another anvil in, in the fear of Christ in my heart. So, love that. So, being discipled and discipling, um, both grow us. So, ask yourself, are you currently availing yourself of this gift? And are you currently pursuing being this kind of gift to another person? Are people investing in you, formally or informally? Okay? I want to make the informal really important because lots of times we think, I don't have a discipler, but there's tons of people that you can go to and ask questions and that's happening and you're growing and you're relating to them. They're discipling you. And it's informal. Okay? But pursue that. Are you investing in others to help them become more like Jesus? That's key, key element of our growth. Hmm, we have two more decisions. I'll give them to you. I can't afford one more week on this, okay? This is so good, but I can't I can't give you one more because we got other stuff we've got to talk about next week, and then we're done, all right? So I'm just going to give them to you, okay? And I'll give you the notes. You can read it. Body life. Body life is so important, okay? And what do I mean? This is sort of an offshoot of of our discipleship relationships. So discipleship is a form of body life, meaning you're connecting with another believer and growing as a result of that. But I want you to think of body life more broadly than just discipleship. It's any kinds of relationships that we're cultivating. And in particular, people who are different from you, it's good to get to know them. People who think differently from you. It's great to get to know them. People who have different preferences than you. It's good to get to know them. If you're a public school person, talk to the die-hard homeschool person. You know? Like, talk to them. Because they're going to challenge the way you think. And that's good. And we need to learn how to do that. Okay? We need to learn how to agree, even though we disagree, about preferences. And even sinful actions against you are good for you. In the body. It will happen. And I have seen so many people walk away from the body because they think, this isn't supposed to happen. I just got hurt. So I'm out of here. That cannot be further from the truth. Imagine, you're a group of people in progress. Which implies you still sin. Which implies I'm going to get sinned against. Right? But God has designed us to transform us. We learn to lovingly confront people instead of seething or gossiping or slandering. We learn to forgive like we've been forgiven instead of growing bitter or becoming self-pitying in that offense. We learn to love for Christ's sake, not for my sake, not hypocritically for selfish motives. We learn to be patient with the weaknesses of others rather than expecting perfection out of them. We learn to respond with kindness and goodness rather than retaliating in anger or vengeance. All of these come to us because we are hurt by one another. So don't believe the lie that church is supposed to be a place where I am insulated from pain. That's not what God intends. You will be sinned against and we must learn to handle it biblically because that's for our growth. That's how God designs body life to work. And now I realize I'm maximized on the negative about body life. There's a lot of positive things but I only have no time. So, okay, service is number six. Service is number six. Really, bird's eye. <laughs> oh, this is a, it's a shame. <laughs> you have been given gifts by Christ. And He expects you to use them. And when you do, when you serve other people, you become like Jesus. So basic. Alright? And it's so overlooked. We often think, here's, this, here's a quote that, from that Finally Free book that blew my mind. I'd never thought about it this way. So you go into a church and you see all the mature people are doing most of the serving. Right? And you think, wow, they're serving because they're mature. And he's like, mm, what if they're mature because they're serving? Right? See the difference? And I think that's more the case. I agree with this guy. I think we grow as a result of denying ourselves and learning to serve others. And there's a lot of notes on this that I'll send to you. But service is number six. So let's tie it all together here. There's a lot we left out. Obviously. Even my own message. But beyond my own message. Things that I left out on the chopping block. You know, things that didn't make it. Ooh yeah. Like trials. Whoops. That's huge, okay? But we talk a lot about that in Acts, so I left that on the table. Personal Bible study, again, massive, massive. Private prayer, huge, okay. Ex- extremely important. So I'm not saying those things are not important. Uh, those things are very important. But the church is God's gift to you as an incubator. The church is how we grow up into full maturity as we as we avail ourselves of these gifts. And so what I would encourage you to do is review these points and ask yourself if you've neglected any of these areas in your own spiritual growth. And make an action plan and work to implement these things into your life. And if you need some help, come talk to us. We will help you uh, assess and implement, and we're happy to do that. I'm constantly assessing and implementing in my own life, so I'm also a work in progress in this. Uh, none of us have arrived. So, next week we'll, we'll tie up the series, and um, hopefully I'll get through all my notes. Next time. All right, let's pray.